You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. For our scripture reading, let's open our Bibles to Hosea 5, and we'll read Hosea 5 and 6. This morning we read chapter 1. There the Lord asked Hosea to marry a prostitute to symbolize what his nation Israel is like to him. That imagery continued in chapter 2 and 3. He comes back here in chapter 5. But with chapter 4, the Lord takes a turn where He is taking His people to court and He is laying His charges against them and putting them in the public eye. And as we read chapters 5 and 6, this continues. So Hosea 5. Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, O royal house. This judgment is against you. You have been a snare at Mizpah, a net spread out on Tabor. The rebels are deep in slaughter. I will discipline all of them. I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, stumble in their sin. Judah also stumbles with them. When they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, they will not find Him. He has withdrawn Himself from them. They are unfaithful to the Lord. They give birth to illegitimate children. Now their new moon festivals will devour them and their fields. Sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn in Ramah. Raise the battle cry in Beth-Avon. Lead on, O Benjamin. Ephraim will be laid waste in the day of reckoning. Among the tribes of Israel I will proclaim what is certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim returned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he is not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah, I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will go back to my place until they admit their guilt. And they will seek my face in their misery. They will earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us, but He will bind up our wounds. After two days, He will revive us. And the third day, He will restore us that we may live in His presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, He will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophets. 
I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flashed like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Gilead is a city of wicked men stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a man, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, committing shameful crimes. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There Ephraim is given to prostitution, and Israel is defiled. Also for you, Judah, a harvest is appointed. This afternoon I have the privilege to bring you the Word of God as it's based here in Hosea chapter 5, verse 15 through 6, verse 6. And we should read those verses together once more. And in the first verse we read, it's the Lord speaking. So He says, after He said He'll tear them to pieces in verse 14, He says in verse 15, Then I will go back to My place until they admit their guilt. And they will seek My face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek Me. Then at chapter 6, it changes to God's people speaking. So in response, they say, Come. And they encourage each other, Let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us, but He will bind up our wounds. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will restore us that we may live in His presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, He will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Then the Lord speaks again and He says this, What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flashed like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, everyone, I think, knows the names of Bill Clinton, and Tiger Woods. And many people now associate the two together. Now, in a way, that's kind of sad because the President of the United States in the big picture is way more important and way more significant than a professional golfer. But people associate them together because both men were accused and finally admitted to the sin of adultery. Both ended up making public apologies. Both had careers that suffered for it. Though I read yesterday that 2012 may be a great comeback year for Tiger Woods. In the big picture, who really cares? Most people don't really trust words of repentance that had to be slowly pulled and drawn out of the sinner. When the offending person at first denies the allegations, makes counter-accusations, then allows that, yes, there's a bit of the truth because they can't deny it, then offers an apology that hmm, hardly satisfies anyone, and then they ultimately come and they offer a tearful apology that looks more genuine 
They even might say they've sinned. Well, by that point, people have a hard time believing them. Sincere and true repentance is an elusive thing. Well, our Scripture this afternoon knows of this problem. The prophet Hosea was no doubt personally acquainted with it from his unfaithful wife. The Lord certainly knew of this problem with His unfaithful people Israel. From Moses' time to the judges to Joshua, this problem kept occurring. Now, if we're to benefit from this Scripture this afternoon, we have to acknowledge that the Lord is very wise when He reminds us time and again, repeatedly, to follow the way of true repentance. He knows how much we need to hear this. He does not want our religion to be merely outward. Nor does He want us to think that we can put Him in a box or into a mathematical equation as if we can predict exactly how we can get Him to give us what we want. True repentance, true conversion, and true faith are not like that. The true heart doesn't calculate. Rather, it lays itself out before the Lord. It admits its guilt, seeks His mercy, asks Him for grace. And then lets the Lord decide for Himself how to respond. For that heart knows that it does not deserve His mercy. Let's see how our text teaches us this. Under this theme, the Lord looks for true, (coughs) excuse me, the Lord looks for true repentance and love as the proper context for service. The Lord is looking for true repentance and love as the proper context for all your acts and works and service to God. We can look first of all at verse 15 with the preceding context to see that He punished, then He relented, Then the verses 1-4 through of chapter 6, you see the people repenting, but given God's response, not really repenting. And then in the third place, verses 5 and 6, God keeps requiring true repentance and love. So the Lord looks for true repentance and love as the proper context for service. And here we're going to first see how the Lord is trying to get that true repentance and love. He punished, then relented. So we saw this morning that in Hosea, the Lord would threaten His people for the near future so as to bring them back to Him and have new life in the farther future. (coughs) The Lord has different ways of describing what He will do to punish them. So in 5 or 6, He describes it as abandoning them. When they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord... So they're going to sacrifice, you see. They will not find Him. He has withdrawn Himself from them. So He won't accept their sacrifices. He's not there when they worship Him. In 5 verse 14, however, He describes it more actively, actively punishing them. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. Which is very interesting since Judah's imagery in the Bible is as a lion already the lion of the tribe of Judah, while God will be like a great lion, greater than they, I will tear them to pieces. That's very active. I'll tear them to pieces and go away. I'll carry them off with no one to rescue them. And so these two ways of describing God's punishment sound contradictory. If He withdraws Himself and they can't find Him, how then can He also be right there tearing them up? 
Well, the withdrawal of the Lord is the withdrawal of His mercy and grace. It doesn't mean, of course, that He stops being present everywhere, but that He withdraws forgiveness from those who won't repent. So where they are, there's no forgiveness. And they feel like He is far away, like He does not answer their prayers, or pay any attention to their sacrifices. They seek Him but can't find Him. So God is there, but He's like a post. Death, or He's like a wall unyielding. But in another sense, the Lord (coughs) is not withdrawn, for He is like an angry beast. He is ferocious. This picture of God shows that He is still around, but only in justice and wrath. He carries out punishment exactly as He had threatened long ago at Mount Sinai to His people in the wilderness saying, if you do this, then in that case, I will do that. And, for instance, the Lord said, I'll first send you some famine and then I'll send you more trouble and you won't be fertile, for instance. And then if you still don't obey, I'll send marauding armies. They'll destroy you. And finally, the land is going to vomit you out because of your sins. That's what's happening to the people before you there's a certain point at which the land just gets saturated with sin and can't keep the people there and it spews them out. And that's going to happen to you too if you walk in ways of sin. And so the Lord both abandons His people and punishes them actively in the same events. He withdraws His love and He applies His justice. Now this pattern is also presented sometimes as alternate ways instead of saying that you know in one act the Lord is both withdrawing Himself but also actively punishing in another sense. It can also be that the Lord first does the one thing and then follows up with the other. So first He punishes and then He withdraws Himself. And that's the pattern in 5 verse 14 and 15. So in 5 verse 14 He speaks of His plan to punish and exile them. In 5 verse 15 He says, then... I will go back to my place until they admit their guilt. And they will seek my face in their misery. They will earnestly seek me. So he'll be like a lion who leaves his prey torn up. The birds will eat it. The Lord going back to his place is the Lord no longer actively punishing them. Maybe not sending a marauding army any longer or having put them in exile. Not increasing their punishment, but just leaving them to their own situation so that they'll realize how much He has punished them. It's like giving them time to think. Well, the pattern is known from the time of the judges. And it goes like this. So God's people sin and they worship false gods. Then God, first of all, abandons them. He leaves them to their worship of false gods. And then He sends in punishment by enemies. Those enemies oppress the people and they become uh, miserable. And in their misery, they start thinking and realizing it wasn't so bad before when we worshiped God. And they repent and they ask God for help. And God mercifully gives restoration. And so the Lord says in 5 verse 15, I will go back to My place until... They admit their guilt. 
So whatever active punishment or whatever withdrawal the Lord is using, both of them are means to the goal that His people would admit their guilt. He really wants to seek them. Or He wants them then to seek Him. As it says, (coughs) and they will seek My face in their misery, in their trouble. They will earnestly seek Me. The word earnestly is important. It represents His people looking hard really intending to find Him. He punishes them, and then He leaves them torn up, but it's all so that they will repent and love Him. Now we must think about this carefully. For when the end goal is the renewal of God's people, then all the things that the Lord is doing to reach that goal are loving things. He does these things because He loves them. So He's creating situations that will finally make them realize this and then respond to Him in faith and love once again. And all this shows just how determined the Lord is to reach the goal of having His people trust in Him. He is the God of deep love, as we learn from Hosea's prophecies. Now, to appreciate this really well, compare it to the abandonment of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. God was not punishing Christ and leaving Him forsaken in order to, not with the end goal of finally having His Son develop faith and finally having His Son actually love Him, the Son Jesus already perfectly loved His Father God. There was no fault in His love. He Himself as such was not worthy of any punishment. God's purpose in rejecting His Son was ultimately for the rescue of us and out of love for us. Do you realize this then? As you think of your own situation of misery and difficulty, It's only in Christ that our suffering should be understood and experienced as from the hand of a loving Father who seeks our improvement. And so, when non-Christians say, well, all things will work out for good, it's just not true for them. It's only true for the children of God that all things will work out for their good because they trust in Jesus Christ who took away the punishment That would not be for our good. And so in Christ, we have no reason to doubt that all things will work out for our good. So God punished then relented to show His people that what He really wanted was true repentance and love. So now, in verses 1-4, to we're going to see how His people repented, but not really. So with all this in mind, let's look at the verses 1-4. to The verses 1-3 to represent the response of Israel to Hosea's prophecy. And it sounds really good at first. Come, let us return to Yahweh. Let's repent. That's the word that's being used. It's the word for true repentance. It's for turning back, returning, or just turning. It's about totally changing direction. And the people are exhorting each other, they say, come on, come on, 
Let's return to the Lord. Let's repent. In verse 3, they also say, let us acknowledge Yahweh. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. To know Him. And this sounds very positive. <coughs> and they encourage each other in the following way. They say, uh, at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 6, they say, He has torn us to pieces. And in the Hebrew they say, For He has torn us to pieces, but... So they're giving reasons why they're encouraging each other to return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but hey, take heart. He will heal us. He has injured us. They acknowledge it, but He will bind up our wounds. That's the kind of God He is. After two days, He will revive us, and the third day, He will restore us that we may live in His presence. Let us acknowledge Yahweh. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, it rises every day, He will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. So they imagine that the lion will come out of his lair as a doctor with bandages and heal them. He'll appear just as surely as it rains in the winter and in the spring. Now we have to appreciate that there is a difference between genuine confidence in the Lord and presumption. To presume upon the Lord is to put Him into a box or to calculate how to get the response you want with just enough of what He wants from you. It's one thing to come before the Lord and take hold of His promises by saying to Him, Oh Lord, You promised to comfort Your people who repent. You said that You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So we come to You in all humility and seek Your grace. We don't deserve any of it but we pray in Christ's name. That's the right way for us to approach God. But to say to each other, come, let's repent. For if we do, it'll just be a short while, a few days, and He'll restore us. He'll bring us back to Jerusalem. Don't worry, this pain won't last long. And when the people say this to each other, they turn things around. Instead of saying to each other how sinful and undeserving they are and how humble they should be, they say, come let us return for the pain of admitting guilt will soon be over and life will be better. In other words, their repentance is only for their own sakes. They didn't admit sin. They didn't come to the Lord with words of true repentance. And verse 4 shows that they didn't really repent. Though they speak about returning and knowing the Lord in the verses 1-3, to the Lord is not pleased when He answers in verse 4. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. So both nations, Israel and now Judah too, have the problem that their love does not last very long. It disappears as quickly as the snow usually does here in Langley. They say, oh, let us return. But they speak only in a moment of good intentions without really meaning it for the long term. They repent, but not really. And this is the conclusion we must draw when the verses 1-3 to are read in context, they didn't really mean it. 
And this shows that we could say all the right things and still not be acceptable to the Lord. What they said as such wasn't necessarily wrong, but what they didn't say and the underlying tone and the way of thinking about God was problematic. It's good to say, come let us turn back to the Lord. It's good to say, let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge the Lord. But if the real reason for saying it is not really to repent of sin and not really to know God, but just to get past some trouble or consequences, then the Lord is not pleased. So you see, there's the Bill Clinton and Tiger Woods kinds of repentance. And then there's true repentance. Clinton fought tooth and nail in court was finally found guilty of perjury and thus impeached by the United States Congress, though he was afterwards uh, nicely acquitted by the Senate, which happened to have a lot of Democrats. He was found guilty by other courts of perjury and was debarred as a lawyer for five years and lost his Supreme Court bar as well. And Tiger Woods planned and manipulated his dozens of affairs for years His apology was carefully calculated and controlled. After all, you don't want to endanger $90.5 million per year. These two men seemed to repent when they were found out. But really what they feared were the earthly consequences. Their popularity was in danger. Their pocketbooks took a hit. Clinton had to pay fines. Woods lost endorsements and had to make a settlement with his wife who divorced him. It's only the consequences that made them say that they were repenting. The Apostle Paul calls this a worldly sorrow that leads to death. First Corinthians, no, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. So what about us? Do we repent only because of the consequences? Do we turn back only to help ourselves? We know that the Lord is looking for true repentance and love. We are to repent in order to glorify Him. Now this means that ultimately the Lord is looking for this to come from our own hearts. And we have to humble ourselves and always remain humble. We also must be ready to confess our sins and fight them always. Now let me give you a concrete example where I've heard people pray and they'll say, forgive us all the sins we have committed and those we will still commit yet this day. Something like that. I've only ever heard this in the last two years and I don't know if you've heard it, but to me, this sounds too much like giving up without a fight. It suggests a casual attitude about sin like, well... There's no way we can avoid sin anyway. So we'll just ask God to forgive our sins even before we commit them. Now this is not the way the Lord teaches us in Scripture. This is not a pleasing way of praying. It's much better to pray, forgive us our sins. And you ask in all humility with sorrow that again you must ask. And grant to us your Holy Spirit to fight against all our sins. Otherwise, if we go the other way and say, forgive us all the rest of the sins we're going to commit today, then we don't need to ask for forgiveness anymore for the rest of the day. 
It's all covered already. And we could say, well, we're already forgiven anyway because we prayed for forgiveness in advance and that might just make it that much easier for us to go ahead and sin. And of course, that would be terribly displeasing to the Lord. It's not much different than thinking that because you go to church, He must be pleased with you. As such, it's not true. The Lord God is looking for true repentance and love. He's looking for what comes from the heart as the only proper context in which your church going and your Christian life might be pleasing to Him. He desires people whose love stays the course and abides. And so God keeps requiring true repentance and love. Verses 5 and 6 complete the text this afternoon with the Lord saying that it's precisely because they're so short on true repentance and love that He keeps reprimanding, keeps threatening, and keeps chastising them. Therefore, (coughs) He says, Therefore I cut you in pieces with My prophets. I killed you with the words of My mouth. My judgments flashed like lightning upon you. So He's saying, you didn't truly repent. And you've got to keep hearing the Word of God that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword that penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Hebrews 4, verse 12. (coughs) Well, congregation, how does your heart, your heart, your deepest self, how does your heart respond when you read the prophets? When you read all the threats the Lord made through them, is it too much? Does it make you say, enough is enough? I heard this already. And we read this yesterday. What about when the ministers of Christ call you to true repentance again and again? Is it too much? Now, if they never hold out the Lord Jesus Christ as precious and beautiful, then it will be imbalanced. But woe to that minister who lulls his people to sleep by never calling them to repentance. He would have to answer for their souls on the last day. So let us take it as a settled principle that the call to repentance is the gift of God to us. He does it because He wants us close to Him. He calls us to return because He loves us. His heart reaches out to ours, seeking, calling, beckoning us back to safety, back to life, back to joy, encountering all of the temptations of the world. And all this is ours in Jesus Christ, His Son, by faith. The Lord says in verse 5 that He cut them in pieces with His prophets, that is, with their messages. And He killed them with the words of His mouth, that is, the words His prophets gave from Him. The Lord uses words. That's how He comes to us. That's how He reveals Himself. To the point that the revelation of His Son Jesus Christ appearing in the flesh is called the revelation of the Word. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. When the Lord uses words toward us, He shows us what He wants us to use in responding to Him. He wants us to use 
words. And so, we come to the end of Hosea's prophecies, chapter 14, verse 1, and there it is. Return, O Israel, to Yahweh your God. Your sins have been your downfall. And verse 2, take words with you. Take words with you and return to Yahweh. Say to Him, forgive all our sins. There they get named. And receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. So there, they know that they can't offer the fruit of their lips. They can't give their service to God unless they first have forgiveness of their sins. So we are to speak to the Lord and ask for that. Not by heaping up useless words and repeating mindless phrases over and over. We're to come to Him with open hearts, hearts that are humble and that love Him. No presumptuous repentance. As if it's easy to get our way. Anyone who would come only to do the outward things will not be accepted. Even though God commands that we serve Him, He does not accept the sacrifice that has no heart. So the last verse, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice and acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings. Lord says, I desire mercy. It's the, the same word as is used for love. It's that constant love the Lord desires. An acknowledgement, the knowledge of God. And he says, I desire this rather than that. And the Hebrew expression, I desire this, not that, has the meaning, I do not want any of that stuff. Unless it also includes this first. So the Lord does not want anyone to offer their service to Him, um, to say they're doing it for Him, they're serving Him, uh, doing His will, etc. If at the same time, they're not people of true, repent- true repentance, humility, godliness, mercy, love, and the true knowledge of God. So claiming God's blessing while not also truly knowing Him is a misuse of His name. The Lord looks for true repentance and love, the proper context for service. No service pleases God if it doesn't proceed out of faith. No thanks to God is truly thanks unless it comes from a person who actually loves Him because they know they're thanking Him for a true, complete, perfect salvation. So we are taught by Yahweh our covenant God that the proper context for all service is true repentance and love for all our good works, all our encouragement and sharpening of each other, all our service in His church, all our work in office. It all has to grow out of true repentance and love at a personal level. And basically, that means going back to the cross of Jesus Christ day after day. Laying it at the cross of Christ day after day. Delighting in the Lord Jesus Christ day after day. And so there is no day so good that you are beyond the need of His grace. There's no day so good that you're beyond the need of His grace. But take heart, brothers and sisters, there's no day so bad that you're beyond the reach of His grace. There's no day so bad that you're beyond the reach of His grace. 
always go back to the cross. This keeps us humble about ourselves and full of glory for God alone. This is the only ground for a repentance that is actually concerned about God's honor and not just the consequences for ourselves. We need the godly sorrow that leads to repentance and leaves no regret. Again, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Both Bill Clinton and Tiger Woods must hugely regret that their infidelity was found out. But true believers never regret being found out. If you figure this out, this is, this is beautiful and wonderful. Just think of the Apostle Paul. He was found out by God who blinded him <coughs> on the road to Damascus. And ever after that event, the Apostle looked back with deep gratitude that the God of grace had, in His infinite mercy, counted him worthy to become a believer in Jesus Christ and to become an apostle and so on. He who he who called himself the worst of sinners. So he didn't tell people, would you quit talking about my past? I'm beyond it. It's, it's done. I don't want to hear about it anymore. No, the apostle was the opposite. He couldn't stop talking about the grace of God at work in his life. He had absolutely no regret whatsoever that his sin had found him out. Godly sorrow brings repentance and leaves no regret. When you're afraid of the publicity and exposure, maybe you're hiding something that you would like to just keep hidden, but all the while that you keep it hidden, you never deal with it and it never gets fixed. And so you can never completely say you've repented because you're not really facing up to it. What do you do? Go back to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where God dealt with sin. And to glorify that all-glorious Son of God for the glory of your Savior who is now in heaven at God's right hand for the glory of the head of the church. Repent of your sins. Turn from them truly. Hate them. And tell others how the Lord rescued you from them. And ask others for help. Glorify the Lord by always being humble about yourself. Boast only in the Lord. If the publicity of our sin frees us to speak of the huge forgiveness of Jesus Christ for us, then the publicity is good. The Lord will use that to confirm you in your faith. He will use that to fill your heart with joy and then you'll be ready to serve Him in everything. See, that's the right context. Then bowls will be offered on God's altar and whole burnt offerings will delight Him. That is to say with, he, with Romans chapter 12, then your life in view of God's mercy for you will become a sacrifice of praise to Him. Let us, let us then give our lives to the Lord always. First in true repentance, faith, and growing love. And then we will serve Him always. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.